Jesus' name. Amen. The scripture speaks in many places of what our world will look like just before Jesus returns for his church. The Bible cover to cover is full of prophetic utterance. In fact, you may know that one out of every 30 verses in the Bible mentions the subject of the end of time or of Christ's return to earth, the rapture of the church. It's a major theme in scripture and it's impossible to read through the Bible without at least giving it attention. Prophecy really is just history written in advance and so it shouldn't be surprising to us when news headlines and current events begin lining up with the prophetic writ in scripture. Without doubt, we are living in those days, the last days, at the end of time. When we hear about nations rising against one another, wars and rumors of war, when we read of earthquakes, famines, and the outbreak of uncontrollable disease, when we see godless leaders passing laws that pervert the moral fabric of society, when we hear good being called evil and evil being called good, when we see a culture more in love with themselves and with pleasure than with God, when we see all of this, we know, we understand as people of God and people of the word that it is almost time. Just last Sunday, we were sitting in a circle in our new youth chapel with our students just ahead of drive-in service. And I got to say, I'm enjoying the air conditioning tonight, praise God, because all of you had it in your cars, but the preachers don't. So, but last week we were reading through Matthew 24, which is an eschatological passage. You know, I just had to throw out that big word just to make you think I'm smart. But uh, I am no eschatological theologian. But, but Matthew 24 is all about the end times. And Jesus' disciples approach him and ask him the question, Tell us, Jesus, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, and he launches in. First of all, he said, take heed that no man deceive you. One of the pervading, prevalent ideas and forces at work in the end times will be a spirit of deception. This, this force that will seek to deter and get as many people, worldly and even the people of God alike, off course. And Jesus said, you've got to be intentional even disciples of mine, even people of the name, you've got to be intentional that, that no man deceive you. The apostle Paul, he talked about it and he said, there will come a time when man will not endure sound doctrine, but they will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They will, they will get people around them and preachers around them that will tell them what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear from the word of God. Jesus said, it will be a sign of my coming. And we see that, don't we? Yes, sir. 
verse number four, verse number five, excuse me. He said, for many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ. And likewise, again, they shall deceive many. Understand, Jesus said, that they are going to come not under the banner of some other world religion or under the banner of some political group or, or party, but they are going to come under the banner of the name of Jesus. And those people shall deceive many. He said, it's a sign of my coming. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. It occurred to me in even just a cursory study of history over the past century in a bit, you know that it's been a, a century stricken with much war. The 20th century was... I read a quote today or an article today. It was the most murderous in recorded history, the 1900s. The total number of deaths caused by or associated with its wars has been estimated at 187 million lives, the equivalent of more than 10% of the world's population circa 1913. Jesus said, when you see wars and hear of rumors of wars, the end is not yet. We saw that last century. It's a sign of his coming. For nation, Jesus said, shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And it sounds redundant until you realize that nation, it's the Greek word ethnos, literally ethnicity, literally meaning race. Race shall rise against race. And don't we see in our world today, in this supercharged climate, not to say that, any, uh, that, that uh, injustice should not be opposed it should be in, ve in very many cases, but, but we can see as racial tensions rise, we can see it written in scripture. It's a sign of his coming. He said, kingdom against kingdom, there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. Has anybody realized or recognized that we are in the midst of a global pandemic? <laughs> I, I noticed that, I saw it in the news. <laughs> It's in the word of God. It's a sign of his coming. These are the beginning of sorrows. They shall deliver you up to be afflicted, and they shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. I think it goes without saying that one of the main groups in society today that is an easy target and that often is not stood behind is the Christians. You can speak against the Christians, but you can't speak against any other group, not that you should, be it ethnicity or gender or, or any other type of group. You, you can't speak against them, any other religions, but Christians are fair game. Jesus said, you'll be hated of all nations for my name's sake, all men for my name's sake. Verse 10, and then shall many be offended. Is this okay tonight? A little commentary on the word of God. He said, many shall be offended. I don't know if you've recognized this, but we live in a day and an age when people get outraged about the silliest things. And they hide behind their keyboards and they let everybody know about it. Did you know that that is a sign of his coming, people becoming easily offended? It's an outrage culture that we live in. It's a sign of his coming. And people shall betray one another and men shall hate one another. I'm just a young man, but I've not seen such a polarized time in my lifetime. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. He said, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Because of undealt with and unrepentant sin in the lives of people, Jesus said, 
that the love of many shall wax cold. There will be this, this complacency, this indifference that grips even the people of God if we're uncare- not careful. It's a sign of his coming. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, all ethnicities, all people groups, and then shall the end come. This verse, no doubt, I wasn't alive, of course, at the time, but previous generations, I have heard it said that this verse was confounding and perplexing because how are we going to reach into every nation of the world, around the globe, with the gospel message of Jesus Christ? And we live now in a day and age when the internet is so pervasive and prevailing and and it's everywhere. And literally tonight as I am speaking, we have cameras broadcasting this service to the, for, to the far-flung corners of this globe. And we don't even really comprehend or pause long enough sometimes to recognize that we are living in a day and an age when so much of what Jesus said and the prophets spoke of and the word of God points to, we are living in the midst of the fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus is coming back very soon for his bride. And I, for one, am looking forward to that day when he parts the sky and comes and raptures his church and catches us away. I've come to remind somebody tonight that soon and very soon he will descend from heaven with a shout. The trumpet will sound. The dead in Christ will rise first. And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air to to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. It's a promise that we can cling to. It's one that we must keep at the forefront of our minds as we are coming to the end of time. Let us not be so consumed with current events and with life and the cares of this world that we forget our date with destiny when Jesus comes back for his church. We could spend the remainder of our time together tonight walking through scripture and verse and prophetic utterance and talking about this and that and and, and connecting it with current or modern events. But tonight I have not come simply to talk about the fact that Jesus is coming soon. And it is a fact. But tonight I would like to focus on how we as the people of God should respond to that fact. Because Jesus would also say in Luke 21, a parallel chapter to Matthew 24, Verse 28, when these things begin to come to pass, then look up. I know you can't touch your neighbor, but look at your neighbor and say, look up. Then look up and lift up your heads. Why? For your redemption draweth nigh. With all of these signs, Jesus gives a simple and pointed instruction to look up. When you see the world going crazy and the signs of the time swirling around you, it is time like never before to get your eyes off of the temporal and the trivial things of this world, to not get distracted by all of the chaos that seems to be breaking loose in the earth and and instead focus your attention on God. That is the response that all of us should have as we see the signs of the times in this end time era. 
The church is about to go on to its eternal reward, and we must be intentional and deliberate to shift our gaze heavenward in anticipation of what Jesus is soon to do, and that is to come and catch away his bride. I'll never forget, it was, I guess, over a decade ago now. I believe it was last summer was my 10-year high school reunion. I missed it. I was away. Been a long time, but I remember being in the 11th grade in art class. Yes, I elected to take art class in the 11th grade. I liked it. And uh, I'll never forget, the teacher asked us one particular day to take a sheet of paper and we were going to do a, 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 an activity or, or some sort of a, I don't know, a lesson, whatever you want to call it. It's been so long. It's been over 10 years. Take a paper and divide it into quadrants, divide it into various segments, a simple enough task. However, you would be surprised how many 11th graders struggled with just drawing two straight lines on a piece of paper. I mean, it seemed like first grade, not 11th grade. They're getting out their rulers. I mean, the, the teacher was confounded by what was happening in front of her. People getting rulers and, and just taking their time and taking care to draw the, the straightest line. Maybe that was just type A personality on display. I'm not sure. But, but the teacher that day observed on our papers, probably mine as well, that the lines were crooked and wobbly and some had veered off to one side of the page or the other. And, and, and even though the neatness of the lines didn't matter a whole lot for this particular activity, the teacher took this opportunity to give the class a little art tip. And she told us that when inexperienced artists are drawing straight lines, they tend to watch the tip of their pencil as they are moving about the paper. And she told us that this is the incorrect way to draw, be it a straight line or otherwise. And if drawing a straight line is the goal, which for us that day it was, she said, rather than look at the tip of your pencil, look at where you want your pencil to go. And then start moving your hand toward the position that your eyes are fixed upon. And you will find that your line will be much more straight. Now, it sounds simplistic, but I have a simple mind. And this stuck with me for over 10 years. And that little tip in art class has been bouncing around up there. And I can tell you, I'm a witness that the straight lines I've attempted to draw since have been much straighter than that day. That was an attempt at humor. I'm, I'm sorry. It. And I think from that simple little illustration, we can lift a principle. And it is that when a person gets focused on where they are, instead of where they are going, they tend to miss the mark. When you get fixated on the position that you are currently, instead of where you intend to go, you tend to miss the mark. 
It's why Paul said in Colossians 3, verse 2, that you've got to set your affections on things above because I'm not living for where I am right now. I'm not living for this temporal frame and this temporal planet. I want to go to heaven someday. Heaven is the destination that I want to go to, and and Jesus is the one that I want to see, the one that died for my sin on the cross and and shed his blood for my salvation. That's what I want to see. That's where I want to go and every once in a while you've got to pause long enough to remind yourself of that fact. To not just reflect on the here and now but the there and then. Not just the here and now, the there and then. Every once in a while you've got to remind yourself of the words from the writer of Hebrews who said, for here we have no continuing city but we seek one to come. In other words, this world is not our permanent home, but we are looking forward to a home that is yet to come. I don't want to get so fixated on where I am that I forget where it is that I'm going, that there is a reward laid up for me in heaven. The Apostle Peter, he, he talked about in 2 Peter chapter 3 that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night when you least expect it. But then he says this, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. And seeing then that all these things, the houses we live in, the cars we drive, the toys and the trinkets and the possessions that we amass, He said, seeing that everything that you can touch and interact with, every tangible possession of this earth will be dissolved, poses the question, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? I think the type of person you should be is what Jesus said, to not lay up treasures upon the earth, but instead to lay up treasures in heaven, where moth and where rust cannot corrupt. It's all about over there, isn't it? It's all about heaven. But it wasn't there that Peter stopped. He goes on, and in verse 12, he he not only tells us what's going to happen, but he tells us what our response should be. Verse 12, he said, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. Peter said, you've got to look. Jesus said, look up. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, he said, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. And you skip to verse 6. He said, Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but, but let us watch and let us be sober. Every once in a while, I've just come to say tonight that, that we've got to remind ourselves that, that I am not living and we are not living and working down here just for down here. Everything that I can see is not all that there is, but there is an eternal reward of being in God's presence for all of eternity with all the saints of ages past. I can't wait to go. I don't want to miss that date on my calendar. I don't want to get so caught up in everything going on that I forget why I'm living for God the way that I am. John, he said, Jesus said in the gospel of John, excuse me, chapter 14, verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. We can't afford to forget that there is a reward at the end of this road. He said, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. Again, I say, I don't want to get so caught up living life and being involved even in the work of the Lord that I forget the reason why I live for God in the first place. There is nothing wrong. It's not selfish or arrogant to have your eyes fixed on the prize of heaven. Even the Apostle Paul said that I press toward the mark for the prize. It wasn't just haphazard behavior. It wasn't just so that he could live a moral life and and have some position of authority in this world. But even the apostle, the greatest missionary that ever lived and walked this earth, the apostle Paul said, I'm living for that day when I see Jesus face to face and God bestows upon me my reward. When God places those crowns on my head that I will promptly cast at his feet, I'm living for the prize. I'm living for heaven, my eternal reward. I have not chosen this life, and I don't believe you have either, merely to live a good moral existence until the end of my days on this planet. But I, I have chosen this path, and, and I seek daily to please God and to draw near to him because someday soon there is a reward with my name on it. There's a reward with your name on it. And it's not just a, a mansion and, and perhaps the crowns, But it's the reward of having perfect peace for all eternity in the presence of Jesus Christ. I've come to remind us that we need to keep our eyes on the prize. I want to say that being with you all in church today is wonderful. Have you enjoyed being in the presence not just of Jesus but in the presence of one another? It truly has been wonderful. And I've been in the empty sanctuary I've preached to the camera. I've watched others preach to the camera, and this is truly much better. Sincerely. And so being with all of you, this is wonderful, but if I could just say this. If this is the apex of our spiritual experience, it leaves you longing, doesn't it? As good as this is, as powerful and wonderful as it is to be in an atmosphere with the people of God, people that love truth and and love Jesus Christ and, and do their very level best to live for him every day, as good as it is to, to feel the presence of Jesus and to have the Holy Ghost moving among us and, and flowing in us, all of that is just a foretaste of what it will be someday. As wonderful as the moving of God's Spirit is, Paul said that being filled and sealed with God's Spirit is only the earnest of our inheritance. Ephesians 1.14. This is just the down payment of what is to come someday soon. It is just a taste of eternity. 
And we can't be satisfied with what we have just down here on planet Earth, as wonderful as it is. But I, and I hope you are too, am looking for my reward and my eternal spiritual inheritance that God will bestow upon me someday soon. The Apostle Paul would also say, 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in this life we have hope in Christ only, then we are of uh, all men most miserable. If this is all that there is, if my faith and if my hope does not extend beyond the grave, then Paul said, this is not the best life, this is the worst life. We are of all men most miserable. I didn't say it, Paul did. And you skip down to verse 32, and in essence, Paul would say, if there's no eternity, and if there's no resurrection from the dead, if the dead don't rise in Christ, and if when you die, there's nothing that comes after, he said, let us eat, let us drink, for tomorrow we die. He said, let's go have a party, and let's enjoy this life while there's still life yet to live. But that's only if there's no eternity. And that's only if there's no resurrection. And he builds his case the entire chapter, essentially, 1 Corinthians 15, about the resurrection of Jesus and, and the resurrection of the saints of God from the dead. And Paul said, if that doesn't exist, let's just go enjoy life. But it does exist. And so at the end, he said, be steadfast and be unmovable and never leave this, never waver from this because we are living for our eternal reward. If you think this is good, you ain't seen nothing yet. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it is written that I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. There is something better. Somebody say, it's better. There's something better than this world. Graduates, there's something better than any earthly achievement that you might accomplish in this life. There's something better. I don't want to forget what I'm living for. I'm living for an eternal reward. I want to visit two passages of Scripture, two narratives in the text of the Word of God. And I'll be coming in for a close here relatively soon. But many of you would know the story in the Old Testament of Jacob, the supplanter. Jacob, the deceiver, the younger brother of Esau, son of Isaac and Rebekah. And you know, this, you know the story how Jacob deceives his father. He was a mama's boy, and Rebekah liked him better than Esau. Somebody say, that's a dysfunctional family. And so Rebekah, knowing that Isaac, her husband, who's getting old, and he's kind of going blind, and he's getting maybe a little senile, knowing that he's about to pronounce the blessing of the firstborn over Esau, sidles up to her favored son Jacob and says, hey, we need to, we need to swindle our way into this blessing for you, boy. And so what, is, what does she do? She prepares the venison, the game, and makes a meal for her husband. And in the meantime, Jacob puts the, the animal fur on his arms and the nape of his neck and goes in with the meal before Esau can get back with his. And Isaac says, it doesn't sound like Esau, but... It feels like Esau. It smells like nasty, rotting animal corpse like Esau. 
So it must be Esau. Come here. Pronounces the blessing over Jacob, the secondborn. And so Jacob, fearing for his life, knowing that Esau is angry with him, he runs away, leaves his home, leaves what's familiar, and ends up in Paden Aram at the house of Laban, his uncle, Rebekah's brother. And so here in Paden Aram at the house of Laban, a new chapter ensues in Jacob's life. We pick up the story in Genesis 29. Laban said unto Jacob, because thou art my brother, because you're my family member, shouldest thou therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall be thy wages? In essence, Laban was saying, I'm not expecting you to serve me without a reward at the end of the road. Tell me what you want as your wage. And so Laban had two daughters, the Bible says. The name of the elder was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah was tender-eyed. I'm not entirely sure what that means. I imagine it means one eye went west, one went east. But you can suppose whatever you want to. I'm just not going to go there. Listen to In the Morning was Leah by J.H. Osborne. That's a great message. Leah was tender-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. And Jacob loved Rachel, the beautiful one, not the tender-eyed one, and said, I will serve thee seven years for Rachel, thy younger daughter. That's what I want, Laban. That's the reward that I'm aiming for. And so Laban said, well, I guess it's better for me to give her to you than some stranger. So sure, come work for me. Verse 20, and Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And and those seven years seemed unto him but a few days for the love that he had to her. And Jacob said unto Laban, give me my wife for my days are fulfilled that I may go in unto her. And so Laban, he gathers together all the men of the place and he makes a feast. He plans a party and invites everybody. And it came to pass, verse 23, last verse, in the evening that he took Leah, not Rachel, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went in unto her. In verse 25, essentially it says, and in the morning there was Leah. Can we just pause for a moment? How many married people do we have in the room? Do you think you would have noticed that discrepancy on your wedding night? I mean, this is a great story, but I've got to admit, this particular point really gets a little foggy for me. How does this happen? How do you not notice Miss Tenderide is in your tent? Well, I had to find out, and so I Googled it. I said, how did Jacob, this happened today, it really did. How did Jacob not realize it was Leah? And and nobody really knows. I mean, everybody is just as perplexed as we are, frankly. There's various ideas. Some said, well, it was dark. It's very specific. I wasn't even, that wasn't meant to be funny, but 
Verse 23 is very specific to mention that it was evening, and so this is, of course, before the days of electricity and light bulbs and all of that, and so it was, it was dark. You know, Laban is a swindler just like Jacob, and, and who knows what kind of drinks he was serving at this party that he threw. Maybe got him a little inebriated. I don't know if alcohol played a part. We're not sure that was suggested. Some suggested that perhaps the sisters looked and sounded similar in the sense of their build, perhaps. Maybe had, they had the same hair color. I, I, all we know is that their eyes didn't look the same. <laughs> That's all we know. You know, some even speculated that perhaps, you know, in the course, over the course of seven years of working, that maybe there wasn't that much interaction with Rachel and or Leah, that they maybe were kept in, you know, in the home doing various things, and Jacob was out working for Laban and just never really had much time to interact, and he was secluded from her. Perhaps that's a suggestion. We don't really know. And I would never try to insert something into the Scripture that the Scripture does not say, but the thought occurred to me that perhaps Jacob got so caught up in the day-to-day routine going to work for his uncle Laban, working for Rachel. But perhaps he got more fixated on the work itself than the reward that was coming to the point where when he got Leah on his wedding night, he didn't even notice. Again, not trying to make the scripture say something it doesn't, but but maybe it became more about the work than the reward. The thought occurred to me that maybe he got so consumed by and weary from all the work that he barely slowed down long enough to recognize that the reward at the end was mismatched. Had he taken his eyes over the course of his work off the prize throughout those seven years, had he stopped looking at and longing for the beauty of Rachel, you see, I think it is very possible to get caught up in the day-to-day cares of life and, and even living for God that we neglect to pause long enough and, and make sure that our affections really are set on things above and, and that our gaze really is fixed on heaven, our eternal reward. And every once in a while, we do need to pause and ponder the beauty and the glory, splendor, and majesty of heaven. And remind ourselves of what it is that we are aimed at. I am looking for a city whose builder and whose maker is God. Let it not be said of this life or of these lives that we got so consumed, yes, even toiling for the Lord, that we forgot who it was we were working for and what it is we were working for. There's another story in Scripture that you're familiar with. It's a story found in all four Gospels. It's described in various ways and talked about in different ways, but but it's a story of Mary and of Martha. Luke chapter 10 is is the Gospel that I'll direct our attention to. Verse 38, now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Music, why don't you come join me? Verse 40, the Bible says, But Martha was cumbered about much serving. And so she comes to Jesus and says, Lord, do you not care that my sister 
has left me to serve alone. Bid her therefore that she help me. In the New Testament, we see that there are actually six different Marys. You can count them. There's Mary Magdalene. There's Mary, the mother of Jesus. This one in Luke 10 is Mary from Bethany. Of course, there's a few others. We don't know much about this particular Mary, but of the few facts that we know, one is that she was definitely a worshiper. John chapter 11, 1 and 2, it says, Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. You got three siblings, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And John says, verse 2, It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. She was a worshiper. She was a basker. Basking over busyness, you know. Worship over work. This moment that we just read in Luke chapter 10, it's documented in Matthew 26, Mark 14, John 12. And again, each gospel kind of gives us a different view, a different, different angle. But we learn that Mary takes that alabaster box of precious ointment, breaks it over Jesus' head, the value of which was roughly a year's wages. In Mark, the onlookers were indignant. They called it a waste. In the gospel of Matthew, Specifically, it, it narrows it down and says that it was the 12 disciples who were in particular indignant. And John narrows it down in chapter 12 even further and singles out Judas as the primary source of indignation. They all suggested that the content should have been sold and the proceeds given to the poor. In Matthew and Mark's account, the people identified this act as waste. But Jesus commends her because he knew it was worship. So significant was this act that Jesus, he said, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So here we have this dichotomy, right? We have Martha in this corner. Martha, the worker. <sighs> we were talking about boxing this morning. I just wanted to get in on the action. And in this corner, we have Mary, the worshiper on the floor of the living room. <sighs> in the kingdom of God, let me just say this, that we need both. We need worshipers and we need workers. The truth is, within each of us, it's not an either-or scenario. It's a both-and. And really, it's a tension between the two that we must walk the line of. Right? It's a tension. We all have that inner Martha, that inner Mary, that inner worker, that inner worshiper. And so again in the story, Martha's in the kitchen cooking and cleaning up the storm, cook, cooking up a storm. But Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, eating up his every word. And I bring up this story because perhaps, like Jacob in the Old Testament, Martha got so caught up with the work that she totally missed what she was working for. Simply the reward of being in Jesus' presence. Jesus is in the next room and the opportunity is so tangibly close for her to be in the presence of the master. But she is so caught up preparing and working for Jesus that she almost missed Jesus. Again, I'm not saying that we should never work. There's a tension between the both and we need both in, our, in the kingdom. 
When she approaches Jesus to hopefully rectify the discrepancy between the two sisters' workload, Jesus actually has the audacity to to instead commend Mary for her worship and offer a gentle rebuke to Martha. And he says in verse 41, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. If you ever are wondering which way to lean, Jesus tipped the scale to let us know that we should always favor worship over work. We should always favor basking over busyness. Always. And I've just come this evening with a simple reminder for everybody under the sound of my voice and my hearing. There is a reward at the end of the road. The ultimate goal for every believer is to not just live a good, moral, quaint life on planet Earth, but our goal is to someday stand before Jesus and hear him say the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of the Lord. I'm living, I'm serving, I'm working for the kingdom, I'm seeking to glorify God, but above all else, I am looking to make it. I'm looking for my reward at the end of this road. That's what I live for. That's what we wake up every morning for. That's what we gather week to week in the house of God with the people of God for. I love seeing all of you, but... but, But it's more than just us seeing one another. It's about us someday seeing him together. We do all of this to someday be in his presence. There's an invitation from Jesus Christ himself. He gave it to John the Revelator in the book of Revelation. He said, come up hither. And John, as it were, he he was brought into that heavenly realm and he saw sights that In some cases, he didn't even know how to describe. To describe heaven, it was more about him being able to say what was absent than really what was present because it was so difficult to to describe. And he talks about it. He writes about it. He writes the things he saw. Revelation 21, he said, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle is with uh, of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Remember I said it's, it's described by John more by what is not in heaven than what is in heaven. He said there shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, neither shall there be any more pain, no sickness, no bodies racked with, with crippling pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. In 22, 1 through 5, John said, and He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. 
in the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there the tree of life which bare 12 manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations and there shall be no more curse but the throne of God and of the lamb shall be in it and his servants shall serve him and they shall see his face and his name shall be in their foreheads and there shall be no more night there And they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. That is our inheritance. That is what is at the end of the road. And let us never forget that it is perfectly in order and okay to want that reward, to long for the beauty of heaven, and to desire something more than what this life and what this world and even just what we can experience of God. We look through a glass darkly, the Bible said. What we can experience of God in this life, it is all right and it is needful that we look beyond and and lift up our eyes and, and look up to the heavens and set our affections on things above. Stand with me together, Revelation 22 and 12. Jesus said, behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me. There's a reward to give every man according as his work shall be. It was C.S. Lewis who said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world, they were precisely those who thought the most of the next. And it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. He would say also, aim at heaven and you'll get the earth thrown in. Aim at the earth and you'll get neither. I've just come simply to remind everybody, myself included, that I am living for that great day of the Lord that will come as a thief in the night, that will come when we least expect it. There will be those that will be wise and they will wait and they will watch and they will keep their lamps filled with oil. There will be those that are foolish and allow the oil of the lamp to deplete. There will be those that will be taken and some will be left. But I, for me, as for me and as for my house, I intend to keep my eyes fixed and my gaze fixed upon my eternal reward and home. I wonder tonight before we close this service and bring this into a dismissal. I wonder if we can even now just begin to lift up our hands and lift up our eyes and lift up our focus heavenward. And just once again, allow Jesus to download us with a, with a love and with a longing for the beauty of heaven. I am not living for the here and now. It is a privilege to serve in the church and in the kingdom of the living God. But this is not all that there is. There is a great day coming. Oh, I wish you'd lift your voice tonight. Let it become real again. In the name of Jesus, 
in the name of Jesus. God, we thank you right now for every faithful saint of God. God, we thank you for our elders that for many years and decades have lived and served and been a shining light and an example to all of us of godly lives, living and longing and and looking for that great day. Jesus, I pray that, that in this season that we would not fall prey to the clutches of deception that you warned us of. Jesus, I pray that we would not become cumbered about with all the cares of this life. Jesus, I pray that we would not be so fixated and focused on the temporal possessions that we can amass, that moth and rust can corrupt. Jesus, I pray that you'd get our gaze once again, our focus once again fixed on heaven. In the name of Jesus. Oh, one more time, if you would just go ahead. Just reach for the Lord. Reach for his presence. In the name of Jesus, we pray.